Sylvester is um, one of my queer elders, one of my queer ancestors. I pay homage to Sylvester all the time. Sylvester's energy was beautiful, bright, and bold. Um, they embodied a lot of the things I love about San Francisco, San Francisco's queerness, San Francisco's style, and also the contributions that lots of Black queers have made to San Francisco that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. Hello, everyone. This is Micah Sigourney, also known as Vivian Forevermore. Welcome to Stud Stories. Stud Stories is a queer history podcast that focuses on the stud bar in San Francisco. Through stories about the stud, we will talk about queer history in San Francisco and the world. We're going to talk to historians, DJs, drag queens, owners, workers, and patrons. We started the podcast when the COVID pandemic struck and we had to isolate here in San Francisco. This podcast is a chance to stay in touch with our community while also documenting the social and cultural histories of the stud bar and the queers that love it. Maybe you've never been to the stud bar and you're thinking to yourself, who cares about just another bar? To which I'd say, the stud was founded in 1966. That's three years before the Stonewall riots in New York City, which fomented the gay liberation movement. It survived the AIDS epidemic and hosted some legendary performers. Which is what we have for you today. We're going to be talking about Sylvester. Yes, that Sylvester of disco fame, Sylvester of the Cockettes, but Sylvester of so much more. For this episode, we brought on guest Kelly Lovemonster, who was, for a little while, a part of the Stud Collective. Hi, Kelly. Hello, Micah. <laughs> um, <laughs> will you introduce yourself to our, to our listeners? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Kelly Lovemonster. Um, I lived in San Francisco for nine glorious years, and I currently am residing on Gadigal land, uh, also known post-colonization as Sydney in so-called Australia. Um, I would just like to pay my respects to uh, the Gadigal people of your nation uh, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Wow. How long have you been in Sydney now? Yeah. I've lived in Sydney now for two years. Cool. Yeah. And I guess I could also talk a little bit about who I am. Yeah, let's... Other than where I live. <laughs> yeah, tell us yeah. who you are. <laughs> so um, I would say I'm... Uh, right now I tell people I'm firstly a dad. <laughs> That's what I do with the majority of my time. I'm a full-time dad to a beautiful 14-month-old. His name is Alexis. Um and then uh, after being a dad, I'm a creative. I produce events, I do a little modeling, I do a little acting. Yeah, I live a pretty creative life and I feel really blessed for that. And our paths crossed in San Francisco. Yeah. Over and over again in the queer nightlife scene. It really did. We were, we were meant to be friends. <laughs> I mean, if, we're, if we weren't, we sure were meant to hang out a lot. <laughs> totally. I actually remember the first time I saw you, which wasn't in a club. No way. Yeah, it was at an American Apparel. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I also, I did work at American Apparel. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I saw this radiant queer being um, downstairs in the quote-unquote men's section, but like giving us like gender queer androgyny uh, beauty excellence deity <laughs> and um i was like oh god i really need to meet this person and sure enough um 
a couple of weeks later, I believe I may have even, I ran into you in Soma, maybe even at the stud. I love that you bring up that I worked in so-called menswear and then that I was <laughs> androgynous because when, like a few months before I was fired from there, there was this great purge. There was a great purge of people who were mostly queer, to be honest. Um, I don't know why, why they are, were all mostly queer, but uh, there was a period where they said that the men had to wear clothes that were for men. Whoa, weird. And the women had to wear clothes for women. Because I was mostly wearing leggings, and this was a period where American Apparel was only making, like, see-through clothes for women. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so I was wearing, like, a bunch of see-through. And then the, I had to wear, like, a, like polos and stuff. You were also a member of the Stud Collective for a minute. I was a member of the Stud Collective. That was actually such a fun time, and I was so sad um, to leave the collective but it was also at a time where a lot of big changes were happening in my life. My husband and I were talking about uh, moving back to Australia. Um, we were actively engaging conversations of uh, starting our family or trying to start our family. And um, so, yeah, I had to uh, refocus my energy and time in other places. You you were on the committee that I think came up with our vision and mission statement. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I remember that, which I always think of when I read our vision and mission statement. Even though you were briefly part of the collective, what a great contribution you you made to our future. Okay, you ready? We're going to talk about Sylvester. What do you know about Sylvester? What do you know? I know Sylvester is um, one of my queer elders, one of my queer ancestors. I pay homage to Sylvester all the time. Sylvester's energy was beautiful, bright, and bold. Um, they embodied a lot of the things I love about San Francisco, San Francisco's queerness, San Francisco's style, and also the contributions that lots of Black queers have made to San Francisco that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. Mm. I heard that you used they when talking about Sylvester. And in our research, it's interesting in some places he's referred to as they, and in some places they are referred to as he. Yeah. Um, and it seemed that throughout his life, he maintained calling himself he. Like, he specifically said that he was not a drag queen and that he was a man dressed as the way he wanted to be. Totally. I think it's really important to also acknowledge that gender is a construct, period, full stop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and two, that, like, giving the time that Sylvester was alive, I don't know if the same language that we use uh, was as accessible as accessible to Sylvester, right? I think that maybe when Sylvester was alive, um, the options for who you could be weren't as vast and plentiful as the options are now. So mm -hmm. I feel comfortable and confident in using they because I think it, it for me, highlights an energy that Sylvester gave off, right? Sylvester was more than a man. He was more than a woman. Sylvester was a god. He, Sylvester was a deity. <laughs> yes, agree. We're going to start in the middle of the story, actually, which is when Sylvester first performed at the stud, which was August 15th, 1976. I wanted to start with that moment because we are grounding a lot of the history we talk about to moments that happen at the stud. So this was at the stud when it was located on Folsom Street at the Holy Cow, the same stud that Etta James performed at the same stage. And we'll find out a little later that Etta James and Sylvester had some overlap prior to that. Other things for context that were happening in 1976 in America and the world, we had Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs founded Apple Computer 
in a garage in Cupertino, California, 1976. Barbara Walters became the first female U.S. nightly network news anchor. Um, Fidel Castro became the president of Cuba. And then um, some queer stuff. Iowa repealed its sexual psychopath law which was passed in the wake of a moral panic in 1954. And the law had been used to detain dozens of gay men in mental health institutions in the 1950s. So they took away the law that said being gay was made you psychopathic. And the city council of Los Angeles prohibits employment discrimination by the city based on sexual orientation. So that was what was happening the, the year Sylvester performed at the stud. That's, it's really wild this podcast has brought about, I've, I've researched often like what's happening in gay rights that year. And even with the, the the repealing of this sexual psychopath law in 76, in some states it was also the year that um, gay behavior became criminalized. Wow. Um, or more specifically, gay intimacy. And I'm using gay because it's often referring to sex between men. Okay, let's go back in time. Sylvester James was born on September 6th, 1947 in the Watts District of Los Angeles, California. His mother was a devout Christian, and Sylvester and his two brothers accompanied her to the church services where he developed a particular interest in gospel music, and he often joined in the performance. Did you go to church? Yeah, I was, I, in my brain, I was saying, same, same. <laughs> yeah, I feel like... Oh, um, really? Yeah, my, I grew up uh, in and around the church. My mom is a devout Baptist, so I can uh, relate to that uh, upbringing of... Uh, being surrounded by Christianity. <laughs> there was lots of music at uh, the church that I went to growing up. I went to Catholic church, which is just like bells and smells, you know, like, in, <laughs> it was just like incense and then like low tones. And like, <laughs> so I was always jealous of the people who were going to the, the churches with songs. Um, from a young age, Sylvester was accused of effeminacy and recognized his own homosexuality from an early age. This next part I never knew, and I'm feeling a little scandalized by, which is Sylvester had a sexual relationship with an older man at the church. This is before he was 13. Later in life, he maintained that it was consensual and not molestation. He went to a doctor because he had gotten injuries during sex, and the doctor outed Sylvester to his mother, who was not happy. And then at 13, he stopped going to church and moved out of his mother's house. There was nowhere in my research that said whether the older man was charged with any crime, which is interesting mm. to me. When I was growing up gay, queer, whatever, child, bisexual as I was, um, there was AOL and there were all the chat rooms with, like, with men and like seeking out older men was like actually a thing. Yeah, that's, that detail about Sylvester is super interesting. Do you read any Octavia Butler? I have, yes. Fledgling is the book with, um, it's about vampires, essentially. Okay, yeah. I think I read the prequel to that one. Yeah. I really like that book because um, Octavia does a really good job questioning age because the protagonist is a vampire who looks quite young. I think maybe is teenage age, if I remember correctly, and has all these relationships with adults, right? <laughs> and, um... Yeah, and all the relationships are consensual, but like there's this constant undertone, like, oh, is are what the adults doing wrong? I mean, like the vampire is technically like ninety, but like she looks like she's a, a child. Right? Is it a is her being a vampire like a get out of free card for these people who want to have sex with kids? 
Kind of. It's like, yeah, yeah. totally. Anyway, side note, this made me think about that. We could get that's, back to talk about Sylvester. That's a, that's a full note. No, that's what this podcast is about, is that kind of stuff. Um, I was just saying that, uh, the, like, using chat rooms, and often, when I was younger queer, having to reach out to older queer people because it was un, I felt unsafe around people my age and that, which is strange to reflect on now, but, like, I didn't know who was queer or not, right? But the people who seemed to know they were queer were older. Totally. So I would, like, seek, seek them out. But like, and I know a lot of younger folks who had sex with older people be, one, when using the internet, not using the church as the hookup spot. But Totally. It's interesting that you say that because I actually have lots of memories of people in the church, like, having sex. Like, I'm like, maybe not always like, I'm not queer sex in particular, but like the church as a, a meeting place, you know, like a, a network. <laughs> oh, because people are like coming together there, and it's not totally. school, and it's not whatever. Yeah. It's a social network. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and then you have assumedly shared values. Totally, and I and I could see how like if you're queer and religious, those values would intersect in that space. Well, what happened to Sylvester was he got kicked out of his house. <laughs> unsurprisingly he got kicked out of his house um so this would have been in it would have been 1970 he was kicked out of his house um and he was essentially homeless for about two years like until he was 15 at 15 he was starting to go to a lot of gay clubs and he fell in with a group of friends from the gay black community and they started calling they like gave themselves a name which is the Discotes, which is D-I-S-Q-U-O-T-A-Y-S, the Discotes. So it was like this, um, like, youth, youth orient, like, youthful group of, like, black queer people who were, like, running around Los Angeles creating um, parties and events wherever they went. Cute. Um, yeah, and the, his, the biographer of Sylvester said... Sylvester and the discotheques wandered the streets of South Central in the 60s, done up like women and through ferocious gay parties in neighborhoods whose strongest institutions were conservative black churches. It was tempting to see them as fearless and heroic, defiant sissies who were forerunners of Stonewall in the 60s, part of the dawning gay liberation and African-American civil rights organizing. That's really refreshing to hear. I think that, like, you know, um, for me, that felt really nice to remember that, like, oh, yeah, like, you know, black queer people have been present forever <laughs> and have been like on the forefront of like pushing acceptance for like queer people and gender non-conforming people for forever you know hearing you say that like to remember like it's refreshing for you to remember that queer black people have been around forever yeah it makes me think about like invisible histories, like the histories of black people or the and the histories of queer people. Who history like skews towards? Totally. Um, I mean, if I was fifteen, running around L.A. in high heels, I would like what before <laughs> Stonewall. You know, like, do you ever think about that? Like, I love I I love gay nightlife and stuff, but like, I don't know how I would have been before Stonewall. This was all before the Stonewall riots yeah, totally. or the Compton's Cafeteria riots. Like, can you imagine? I can imagine. I mean, it was hard for me to imagine being queer in the 90s. I can't imagine being queer in the 70s. 
when you talk about ancestors, like, and specifically Sylvester earlier, it's like, because of Sylvester, there's ways in which I feel like I've been allowed to exist, you know? Totally. So, <laughs> the discotheques were known to throw giant parties at Etta James's house, <laughs> sometimes without her permission. And this was just thrown in there, and I'm like, ooh, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, they knew her, and... I'm, I imagine it that Etta James, Etta James is older, is significantly older. And I imagine Etta James seeing this like wild troop of like magical queer black children, like teens, youth. And I was like, yes, throw a party in my house, you know. <laughs> she showed him where the key was once and they just never forgot, you know. <laughs> totally. I was going to say that I got Alexis a book called Little People, Big Dreams. And he has an Etta James one but like in the book uh, her essence and spirit is captured and it's one of like um she she was a free spirit you know so i could see how um sylvester and his um gaggle of gays connected with it's wild to me like this was that was still pre stonewall i mean even right after stonewall there were, it was like Stonewall didn't change everything right away, right? Like the gay liberation movement continued on and on and on for years and years. Totally. But like, I think that like, we also have to acknowledge that there's a long history of black queer people uh, finding each other and creating networks. Like the Harlem Renaissance is a great example of that, right? And that's the 1920s. So I think that like, yeah. um, black queer folks in particular have always been used to like uh, creating these networks. And maybe there was a, underground networks of, of sorts where like all the black queer folks know who all the other black queer folks were and they kind of ran in similar circles. Yes, queer networks existed, black queer networks existed, white queer networks existed, lesbian networks existed, all of this existed before Stonewall. Totally. And had to, like, like and when you say network, I, I suddenly think of like underground networks, like obviously because you totally. couldn't be out in the light of day. So my family's from Haiti and I have a cousin and she's uh, a lesbian <laughs> and she tells a really great story and I mean she's a little bit older than me she tells um, a story of when she was growing up in Haiti like you know older people will say that queer people don't exist in Haiti there are no gay people in Haiti and she's like that's just not true you just need to know where to look for them if you're queer and you live in Haiti you know like the networks you know what where to knock on the door and how many times to knock on the door to find your people <laughs> god I also like in like a less deep way like being like a teen being a teenager was like you know equally horrible and romantic for me like it was a time of great turmoil and like i mean i i, I wasn't unhoused like like sylvester was but like the idea of getting dressed up with like a group of people and throwing parties as a teenager like if i had i wasn't i was out but i wasn't really expressing i wasn't expressing my gender the way i was when we met totally. and Imagining being a teenager at that time and like finding others who were, as this as this writer had called sissies, um, which is a word that I really like. I feel really lucky that same cousin. Uh, she ends up moving to the United States, and she's uh, she and I are very close. And um, she's kind of my she's my origin story when it comes to nightlife. I like uh, credit her with a lot of um, 
my connections to nightlife and and my experiences with my first experiences with nightlife she took me to my first club in new york city when i was still underage <laughs> like took my first hit of ecstasy um in her presence like she didn't give it to me but she was uh, around yeah it's all to say uh that i feel similar in that my childhood was like i didn't have i couldn't fully express myself but i was fortunate enough to get glimmers of what my life could possibly look like what was that first club Oh, it was um, Exit in New York City. <laughs> Do you remember Club Exit? No. Club no. Exit I mean, I... was on the West Midtown on the West Side. Uh, Junior Vasquez played at, at that uh, <laughs> party that I went to. Who was, he's like a huge New York City DJ. And my cousin was a promoter, right? It explains a lot of who about who I am, right? And like she, if people used her guest list, she would get you know money. So um, mm-hmm. she always had a guest list at the clubs. And, um, yeah. <laughs> what was it like? Like, what was that first nightlife experience? Oh what did God. you see? It was epic. I remember, like, walking through the doors, and it was, like, really dark. And then I remember, like, this giant main room uh, uh, becomes, like, unveils itself to me. And there's, like, strobe lights and loud techno music or house music um and like drag queens like and i mean like i or and club kids like people who i've only saw on like jerry springer episodes (laughs) and like i heard about heard my parents talking about like you know in private like they were all present and they were all beautiful and they were all like having the time of their lives that's Awesome. What what year was that? I'm just curious. I was in high school. I graduated in ba 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 ba, and that was maybe <laughs> okay. 19 uh, um, 99 or early 2000s. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that's uh, I love that. I was in New York at that time, and I was going to some nightclubs on the the West Side, and I went to Tunnel. Oh my God, me. Tunnel! Yes. I've also Did you go to curfew, which was the eighteen and upside? Oh no, 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 no. I would like, you know, I feel super fortunate because then I would end up at places like Escuelita, which is where all like the black and brown people went, you know? Um yeah. and that's where like the ballroom scene was happening and like and then you know what's interesting about that time in my life when I was in high school, I wasn't out, I wasn't queer. Um but because of my cousin, I still had access to these spaces. So, um, yeah. What? When did you come out, if you don't mind I, asking? No, I don't mind you asking at all. I came out when I was in college. So I came out in, uh, like, 2002, 2002, okay. 2003. Yeah. But your first nightlife experiences were definitely queer sounding. Oh, they were definitely queer. I mean, my cousin was queer, and I think she saw reflections of herself in me, and that's why she, like, took to me, and um, and mm-hmm. why she was showing me around. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember I, my, first, my first Pride ever was a New York City Pride, and my cousin took me to that as well. And um, I think that Pride is the Pride that I came out to her, and I said, 
hey, I think I'm gay. And she was like, girl, we all knew you were gay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, My parents, anytime they get the chance, tell me that when I came out to them, they were completely unsurprised and had been waiting for it. (laughs) Which I feel is like, I don't think gaslighting is the right word, but it's a little fucked up. I'm like, how, how, how dare, like, first of all, I was a feminine little boy and my favorite color was purple and I wore a lot of necklaces because I really liked necklaces. <laughs> I thought they were so cool. I'm the same. I, for, my favorite color was pink and I love the pink ranger and I wore a puka shell <laughs> choker, Micah. Come on. Girl, you were gay. <laughs> I, it took me, I mean, I came out in high school but to, and to my parents later, but it even took me a while to come out to my friends in high school because I didn't want my femininity to mean that I was gay. Totally. And, and not that I was ashamed of my femininity, but more that I wanted to be like, femi- like a- any man, any boy, any whatever I was could be feminine and not necessarily mean gay. Like I was really concerned with like affirming some assumption about feminine men. Totally. I mean, unfortunately, gender and sexuality get conflated, right? And if you're an effeminate man or a feminine boy, people automatically assume that you're gay. And that's frankly just not true. (laughs) Like those things are like completely separated. And sometimes they they coexist, but sometimes they don't. Totally. And I... I, like, wanted it to be true that I was just a sensitive boy who also liked cock. You know, I didn't want it to be... I was a sensitive boy, and it was, like... And obviously, it's because I like... Like, you know what I mean? No, totally. I wanted it to be more complicated. Mike, I'm here to tell you that you're a sensitive boy who just happens to like cock. Thanks, (laughs) Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so affirmed. Um, Okay, let's get back to... Uh, our friend Sylvester, who is having a time with the discotheques. So by the end of the decade, by the end of the 1960s, the discotheques had drifted apart. There was actually a bunch of drama, but we only have a certain amount of time. Um, <laughs> and in 19... I guess, but I think it's important to note here that, like, some of the things I read about the discotheques is that, like, it seemed like a lot of them transitioned. Yeah. Um, later in life or after the discotheques pulled apart and this that idea like the what you had just said even that uh, like gender expression and sexuality aren't exactly the same thing or that later in life Sylvester had to often protest I'm not a drag queen this is just how I dress or like I'm not trans this is this is just how I want to present. Totally. And this is the 70s, right? So hair metal exists and there are other men who are like, have big hair and are wearing makeup and are wearing like, quote unquote, uh, feminine clothing. So like, it's interesting that this is happening to Sylvester because I think that like, also in the in the 70s, right? Disco, uh, men had long hair. Like, th- yes. like, this was just part of the culture as well. Right. Yes, that's been, right. And then Sylvester is the one who gets checked on it all the time totally. as opposed to these others. So the discotheques fall apart. And this is, I've only heard this referred to in one source, but Sylvester was invited to San Francisco to join the Chocolate Coquettes, Ooh. which were the black members of the drag troupe, the Coquettes. Well, I've never heard about the Chocolate Coquettes as well. <laughs> me too. And I couldn't find a bunch more. So like part of me, I didn't check my sources so much, but Wanted to bring it up. While he's he started in the communal house, which was very hippies, you can imagine. Yeah. Do you know about the cockets? Oh yeah. 
What do you know about them? I also lived in Hate Ashbury. That was my first um, San Francisco house, and I thought like, <laughs> I was living the San Francisco dream, and I was just like oh, one of the Cockettes, but not really. <laughs> um, I know that the Cockettes were a uh, performance troupe. Um, they were very um, popular in San Francisco in particular. Um, they would do large shows and parties, um, and that eventually the Cockettes even toured to New York. And when they went to New York, they um, sadly weren't received with the same uh, uh, acclaim and enthusiasm as San Francisco gave them. And uh, I think maybe they disbanded after that or that like uh, put them on summer and they weren't as uh, big posts their New York City experience. Yeah, I that's also what I knew about them too. Um, and that their, their shows in San Francisco would go on for like hours and hours. And sometimes they wouldn't start for like till three hours later. Cause they were all on acid and stuff. Um, Sylvester is often like whenever I hear, not whenever, but often when I hear about Sylvester, they talk about how he was in the Cockettes, but, um, created his own privacy from them really early on. Like he started out in their house, in the communal house, which was very communal. And within a year, he moved from Haight-Ashbury to Market Street near the Castro. Um, and there were a few reasons. One is he like didn't want to deal with their mess, basically. And two, he was one of the few black members of the group um, and like was, it seems like he was aware of that and, and felt separate from a lot of the white members, um, according to this research. And he also differed from the Cockettes aesthetically, where he was way more into the glamorous stage performances they did than the surrealist, great bonkers activities that they did. Um, and so that meant, and he was also one of the most like recognizably talented members who like stood out as a polished performer. So even though he wasn't into, like he was like feeling a little separate, I don't want to say what he was feeling, but he was, there was a separation that was being created. He was often given his own giant solos during their really epic performances that often had nothing to do with the theme of the show because he just presented such a polished, beautiful thing. So it was just kind of like this Sylvester show in the middle of the Cockettes show. <laughs> and it was often just him and his musicians. It had nothing to do with anything else, which is interesting um, to me. And it stood out because I hadn't heard it talked about that way before. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, Rolling Stone even wrote about the Cockettes and described Sylvester as a beautiful black androgyne who has gospel sound with the heat and shimmer of Aretha. Whoa, so that's a compliment, right? <laughs> heat and sh I mean, heat and shimmer. <laughs> Someone write that about me. Um, and then you were right in, in the 1971. So he joined the Cockettes in the 70s. And then in 1971, which would have been around the time he moved out of the, the house, they went to New York City for a run of shows. And I also heard, like, what you had repeated, what you had said, was that um, they didn't do as well in New York because they didn't. And there's this, like, legacy and idea about how San Francisco art doesn't translate or often doesn't go do well outside of San Francisco. Um, I've had this experience. I was in a dance show that, like, was panned by the New York Times but was really lauded here in San Francisco and the Cockettes has been used as an example to me for quite some time. And particularly queer art. Like, I've heard it, like, it's like the queer art of San Francisco. People don't get it outside. Totally. 
I always say, I, I have said many times that San Francisco kind of ruined me when it comes to drag, drag queens, because my expectations of drag queens are very different than I think what other people expect from drag queens. Like, when you live in San Francisco and you go see a drag show, it's performance art. It's like this, like, nuance, um, trippy, just, like, really wondrous performance that uh, the girls in San Francisco do. And not that girls in other cities don't do that, um, but I think that drag in other cities, to me, is not as exciting as the drag in San Francisco. The drag in San Francisco is just it's on another level. Like, drag queens in San Francisco are avant-garde. Drag queens in San Francisco are really pushing the boundaries. Like, drag queens in other cities are cute, but, like, if you want to see what drag can be, you go to San Francisco. (laughs) And it's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like it's rare for a San Francisco queen, even in the days of Instagram, to actually get national recognition. Whereas... I know the names of queens from Chicago, New York, and Boston. Totally. I mean, look, I think drag queens are beautiful, full stop. And I think that drag queens in San Francisco don't always um, go for that traditional drag look, right? They're not trying to be beautiful. They're not trying to... um, be their best woman. (laughs) I think drag queens in San Francisco are like, their messages are sometimes maybe a little bit more dynamic. Um, Again, it's no shade to the other queens. Y'all are cute too. But I'm just saying that like, my heart will forever stand a San Francisco drag queen. I will always root for a San Francisco girl on a drag show. I will always root for a San Francisco girl on a stage. It's just like, I know where their heart is at, you know? Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. I mean, yes, I'm with you. <laughs> uh and this is uh this also what happens next feels very San Francisco to me, which is <laughs> So the Cockettes go to New York City and the story is that people don't like the show because they don't get the Cockettes. Uh according to what I've been researching is and who knows this is probably contested is that the Cockettes in general who went to New York City were partying they were (laughs) the gals who were partying and if you've been to i feel like san francisco when san francisco rolls into like short mountain or honcho people are like oh (laughs) if you need drugs you know like that's the reputation is if you're in a san francisco crew in other cities you are known often for the party that you bring (sighs) um i think the i think the san francisco folks just know how to live we <laughs> we know what it really no we truly know i i saw i went to a show last night um in sydney and i saw this beautiful performance artist betty grumble perform betty grumble is in um uh, follows the foot, footsteps of annie sprinkles like she's an eco such sexual she is just like the embodiment of what it means to be alive and i and Annie Sprinkles, if y'all don't know, is also from San Francisco, from the Bay. And I feel like her art is the embodiment of what it means to be alive. And I just think that's the energy of San Francisco. When we do something, we do it with our our whole self, you know? If we're out at a dance party dancing, we dance with our whole bodies. If we're going to take drugs, we're not going to take a little bit of drugs. We're going to take all the drugs. If we're going to drink, we're not going to drink a little bit of alcohol. We're going to drink all the alcohol, you know? It's like... 
what are we here to do? (laughs) (laughs) You just wrote the next, like, tourist board commercial for San Francisco. It's like, post-COVID, this is what San Francisco is. Um, well, good. That's a good point because the Cockettes were living. They were living at the fact at Andy Warhol's factory. They were doing all of it, and Sylvester was rehearsing. <laughs> so this is this is where the thing. Go- this is what I didn't know is that it's always like the story is that the Cockettes kind of failed and fell apart after New York because they didn't they, they it wasn't working. Sylvester rehearsed for the two weeks that they were there before their shows, and by the second show during her set called her her during Sylvester's set Sylvester said I'm sorry for the mess that this appeared like the I'm sorry for the rest of this mess not exactly the word mess she said something like I'm sorry that you have to watch everything else that's happening on the stage as well and then by the seventh show she quit the cockettes and began building her own acts and I thought here when I was reading this biography that she was in a stay in New York but no she returns to San Francisco to to make her career so like to me Sylvester like does the like I love, and also like the mess is something that I think of when I think of San Francisco drag queens is like, <laughs> like, like sometimes the idea is a little stronger than the uh, delivery of the idea. Um, or sometimes the passion is more, um, more specific than the lip sync, you know? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> and to me, I'm like, that's the cockettes. But, and Sylvester's like, no, I'm rehearsing. I'm here to like continue forward beyond this. Um, which is also I don't know, that she comes back to San Francisco feels so big to me. Um, so there's two ways. There's Before Sylvester becomes a soloist, there's two groups that he's in. First one is from 1972 to 1974. It was called Sylvester and His Hot Band, and they were a rock band. And then 1974 to 1977 was Two Tons of Fun and Sylvester, or Sylvester and Two Tons of Fun, and that was with Martha Wash and Azora Rhodes, a.k.a. Two Tons of Fun. Um, and he performed with that lineup at the stud in August 15th, 1976. And um, they returned also in April and May of 1977. So uh, that was, so Sylvester worked in groups. Like, I, I think it's also interesting that Sylvester started with like the discotheques, right? And then moves to the Cockettes and then moves to the hot band and then to t- Sylvester and Two Tons of Fun before becoming a soloist. Um I don't know. I just think of that, of like the emergence of the like individual from all of these different like chosen families, right? We have the discotheques and then the coquettes, which are both queer ass families, you know? Totally. I think that, do you think that like, and I wonder like how much of that was actually Sylvester or actually like, because Sylvester was, had like label representation, right? And how much of that yep. was like, label or management being like you don't need these people you could do it on your own you know like i wonder how much of that was like like because i think it's the history looks like sylvester liked being a part of a group sylvester liked being um in queer family you know um and and didn't necessarily want to uh reach stardom on Sylvester's own, but would have preferred to have uh, risen with um, Sylvester's queer family, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And also I've heard, I've seen videos of Sylvester talking about Two Tons of Fun um, and I've seen in a Sylvester documentary, somebody else talking about how 
when he found Two Tons of Fun, he like really found himself. Yeah. When he found Azora Rhodes, Armstead, and Martha Martha Wash, that was when Sylvester like became more Sylvester, which was in relationship to these two women. Which is also like a beautiful sentiment to me, is like the like the queer identity becoming complete um in relation to two two other people. Totally. Um and not that we aren't solo individuals, but like I really the, like the relationality of our identities is really interesting to me. Yeah, no, you know, uh, when I was getting ready to be a parent, I uh, was consuming lots of um, uh, books about parenting. And in one of the books I read, they said that there was uh, two ways to raise a child. One of the ra- ways was to raise a child to be an individual and to be separate. And another way was to raise a child to be a part of a family and, a, and a, in, in um, connection to a family, right? And I think that we see that in, reflected in lots of uh, cultures around the world. Like I think in lots of Western cultures, we raise children to be quite individualistic, you know? And I think maybe in um, some other uh, cultures outside of the U.S., we see folks who raise kids to be a part of like a family unit, right? And I think that there, mm. as human beings, that we have this natural desire to be in community, right? I think that like we're supposed to be in community, we're supposed to function in community, and that maybe Western culture has some things wrong in and around like individualism, you know? I recently, um, I think my last post on Instagram was a thank you to my queer family because, you know, there's no way that I would be where I am today if it wasn't for my queer family, if it wasn't for my Swagger Like Us family, if it wasn't for my queer family in Australia who, like, jumps in and takes care of my son when uh, I need a hand. Like, I couldn't be the person I am today if it wasn't for so many other people. (laughs) Right. Right. And also, it's interesting for you saying this, I was thinking about it that like you to me knowing you kelly like you are a builder of community like in san francisco through the nightlife you built community um and often queer people find their community in the nightlife historically in the past because queerness has been criminalized etc but like you really built not just a scene which you also built but you built community within that scene and then And to me, when I think about queer community, I think about queer family and how it's often chosen, right? And so then you're a maker of queer family, and then you've just recently started to make a blood family. Totally. Like with your child, a child, I don't know, blood family. I don't know the best way, a flesh family, but like, you know, like, and, but also at the same time, your family is also like, your, your child is being raised in a, by many queers at the same time. So it's like, like, are we moving, like until queers were really starting to have children and being super out about it, like we were rejecting our heteronorm, hetero parents and then finding our family somewhere else. And your child is being raised in by a queer family. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. I, I really um, push back on this idea that there's like uh, a difference between uh, chosen family and blood family, because the reality of the situation is your blood family chose each other, right? Your mom and your dad are strangers to one another. <laughs> it's just like, like this idea that family, there's this like defining thing that makes a family. No, like family are people who choose each other full stop. Like, you know, and I think that like my queer family 
is my family. Like, I, I may articulate it as queer family because I think that there's something important in that. But I, what I, but it's, it has the same power and sentiment as just the word family, you know? Yes. And I, and I yes. don't want folks to ever hear me talk and hear that I'm differentiating, like, my queer family from my quote-unquote biological family. Like, my queer family is my family, period. <laughs> I think I agree. I agree. I, and also that thing about yeah, your parents choose each other, right? Like, our parents were strangers. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, and so were your yeah. grandparents, and so were their parents. Like, it, we're, this is just a collection of strangers who just decided <laughs> to come together and say that they were family. Yeah, and just like sometimes when certain strangers fuck, a baby just actually just gets made. Totally. And sometimes you know, that's the, and then suddenly we're like, that's the important one when that when that baby happens. I think a baby can be like the manifestation or the visualization of family, so it helps anchor people in the idea of family because they have this like physical representation of that family. And I think for queer folks, like. For us, a lot of times that is like the nightlife and like all the babies that we create in nightlife. Like you know, like how many parties has the stud given birth to? Like, <laughs> and 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 how many of those parties have created like queer families? You know, totally. And like while you were saying that, I thought, is the stud a family or a like the stud's a house that different families keep moving into? Which is really nice to think yeah, of, like that totally. this house has been inherited or. Until recently, it really was moved, the ownership really moved through the people who were there. And it still does. I mean, that's what the, co the collective is. But it moved like from like someone who was a DJ and bartender there who then became an owner or like someone died and then a worker became an owner. And like it gets passed down in these ways. And like my connection to the stud, I'm not connected to the deep history of it, but I was there for like eight years before becoming an owner so it's like it's the house we passed down and anyway well and also i mean family does come up for, for sylvester a lot like even if we look back at the beginning sure his parent his mother brought him to church but church is community as well like there's there's community throughout um this is where we get to get into some like cute facts about sylvester because he goes off on his own in 1978 and he becomes friends with harvey milk do you know harvey milk oh of course i know harvey milk Who's <laughs> Harvey? Tell me about. Tell me anything you know about Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk was um, one of the first queer elected officials in San Francisco. Um, Harvey Milk uh, lived in the Castro and owned a camera store in the Castro. Um, Harvey Milk um, was. I would say Harvey Milk was probably more queer than gay. And in that, I mean that, like, I think Harvey Milk, his politics were uh, radical, right? Harvey Milk didn't think that, he thought that you could be a politician and still go to the bathhouse and fuck, <laughs> you know? Like, you didn't have to live two separate lives. Like, you could do right. all of it. Right. You didn't have to do respectability politics. Totally. Okay, in 1978, year of his solo career, uh, he pr he had a cameo role in The Rose, the film The Rose, starring Bette Midler. Oh, cute. <laughs> he, was, he was cast as one of the drag queens in it. Um, so then we get into, like, his, what I know more of his work, his later work. Um, in 1978, he released Step 2, which was a disco album, and he met Patrick Cowley. Patrick Cowley is, like, a famous San Francisco musician and producer. Um and they became close friends, and Patrick was actually a backup musician on 
on Sylvester's tours for several years. And this album had the song, You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. And then in March 11th, 1979, during a sold out show at the War Memorial Opera House, he was awarded a key to the city by Diane Feinstein. And March 11th became Sylvester Day, which I didn't. Did you know there was Sylvester Day? I had no idea there was Sylvester Day, but I'm putting it in my calendar calendar right now. Every March 11th, I'm celebrating Sylvester. (laughs) Right? I mean, why why isn't there a Sylvester parade in San Francisco? What is the problem here? Like, also, to think that Sylvester was like a homeless youth in L.A., moves to San Francisco, joins the Cockettes, goes to New York with the Cockettes, they... they bomb. Sylvester lives, comes back, starts two bands, tours the world, tours nationally and internationally, comes back, stays in, living in San Francisco, and then sells out the War Memorial and gets the key to the city. It was only nine years be- between him moving to San Francisco and getting the keys to the city. Yeah, but I think that's the magic of San Francisco. Like, San Francisco is a city, like, full of possibilities. And I, I even felt that when I first moved to San Francisco in 2009. I was like, oh, like I can be whoever I want in San Francisco. I can do whatever I want in San Francisco, you know? I thought I, too, could have the keys to the city. <laughs> but, it's, but then like there is the thing where it's a small town and that it doesn't always translate out. And I say that to you, who's someone who's like, you moved to Australia and you're still a, <laughs> a creative yeah. and a producer. Like it does translate out. Like the things that we develop here, I feel like I've taken what I've learned here and gone away from here with it. And it still, it still works, you know? Totally. Um, and so Sylvester showed that it still worked. Um, okay. Disco falls. The end of, it's the end of the seventies. Disco's over. Um, and there's not a lot of major labels that want him. So he joins Megatone, which is founded by Patrick Cowley and Marty Blackman, And it catered to the gay scene with high energy dance music. And he released All I Need in 1982. And maybe, Kelly, you've heard of the song Do You Want a Funk? Yeah. It topped the U.S. dance charts. Um, and that was when he was on a small local label here in San Francisco. And then in 1983, he became a partner at his own record label, which I fucking love. I didn't know that. I think it's genius that he was like, fine, I'm buying in. Let's do this. Um, And then in the 80s, there's this note in the bio of him where he he was touring, but he was playing smaller and smaller venues and he had less production value. So he used to be touring with like a band and two tons of fun. And now he's touring with a backing track. Um, So he's, he's experiencing a decline in the 80s, but he's still making music and he's on a label and he's a part owner of the label. Um, And then in 85, his boyfriend, Rick Cranmer, became HIV positive and he died in 1987. Sylvester refused to get a blood test, assuming that he was also positive. And he worked on an album that to this day remains unfinished and he became too ill to tour. And with diminishing health over the next few years, he continued to give interviews to the media, being open about dying from AIDS, and in particular sought to highlight the impact of the disease, the impact the disease was having in the African-American community, which I, I did not know about him, um, which I think is incredible. Like he has this, this kind of like waning career and he's dying from a chronic illness and his drive to be in the public eye and give interviews is particularly to talk about the disease. Yeah, no, I was um, nodding my head because I, um, I was, I also didn't know about all that stuff, and I, I guess I was just like, felt really uh, also impressed and uh, 
I think that's really powerful. You know, a lot of times when when people have intersecting identities, multiple identities, uh, you know, I always uh, think to myself like, oh, I wonder like what identity is at the forefront of their mind? Is there an identity at the forefront of their mind? And it sounds like it was really important. Being black was important to Sylvester, right? Sylvester, like Sylvester's blackness was always something that, Sylvester took pride in and I think that like using your voice to talk about the impacts that um HIV and AIDS was having on the black community in particular is really powerful and it's really it was a is a powerful choice for Sylvester to make an important choice for Sylvester to make and he I mean he continued even through this time to be in public in San Francisco there's legendary film of him at the Castro Street Fair performing on stage or getting on stage in a wheelchair with oxygen. Um, and then he died in 19, died in December 16th, 1988, surrounded by friends and family. So, you know, what's wild is in learning about Sylvester when I was younger and then even older, I'd never actually knew. I never, I wasn't told about his death. Like it was, the story was never led with died from AIDS. Yeah. Or like also that he, talked about having AIDS like a lot of people who publicly who died from AIDS related complications in the 80s were dying from other things right they weren't saying why they, they were no one was saying they were dying from AIDS and then we have Sylvester going out there and being like I'm dying from AIDS totally that's our Sylvester talk <laughs> <laughs> did you learn anything about Sylvester today I've learned lots of things about Sylvester today I feel like it's so um nice to hear about queer history. Um, It's also really nice to like learn more about um, someone who I feel like I followed, I follow in the the footsteps that they created before me. Like, you know, Sylvester is one of my uh, black queer elders and I will forever be grateful to Sylvester for like making space for me for in spaces like the stud you know (laughs) like sylvester's presence at the stud made it easier for every other queer black person to come through afterwards you know yeah and i also highlighted that the stud has always been a place for queer black people to uh, come and congregate especially in a san francisco uh, city like san francisco who has a history of like you know like of spaces uh, where like uh, what was the name of the gay bar in the Castro where... Uh, the Pendulum. Yeah, the Pendulum. So there was a gay bar in the Castro for uh, black people in particular, and that got shut down. But, you know, places like the Stud still continued to hold space for uh, black people to come and congregate. Yeah, which is super important. Yeah, now we just got to find a new building, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hey, want to buy, wanna buy a bar, Kelly? <laughs> <laughs> Everything in its time, maybe. <laughs> we maybe. could just build a, like, we could have a kid's room for Alexis. <laughs> a creche? Kids creche? Kids drop creche. Kids off. Yeah, we could have Alexis. <laughs> we could get, I don't know, do you know Cara Rose DeFabio? She has a gay-ass baby. Rose, we yeah. get some babies. <laughs> we could import Michelle T's baby. One of my favorite things about living in Sydney is that there are actually lots of uh, spaces for you to have a drink and also have your kid. Like, you know, there are like, uh, we call them hotels here. Hotels that have entire areas. Uh, Hotels are essentially, it's just a large bar. Oh, okay. 
yeah, is what a hotel is. And usually, and sometimes they have accommodations upstairs for people to stay in. But, um, but at hotels, you have these, uh, large spaces, outdoor spaces for kids to run around and play. So you could like be in a beer garden having a beer or a drink and your kid could be running around playing with other kids. And like, I'm so grateful to live in a country that like, acknowledges the fact that parents are also humans <laughs> who may want to have a drink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you have a lot of friends with kids? Um, I am fortunate to have a lot of queer friends in Sydney who do have children. Wow. Um, and that has felt really nice to uh, connect with um, other queer families. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I get messages um a lot of time from queer folks who um, say seeing my family has inspired them to start their own family. So I feel super hopeful for the future. I think that, you know, in the future, we will, queer children will be abundant and plentiful. <laughs> We're going to see lots more queer children running around. And by queer children, I don't mean like, I mean children who are raised by queer parents. I hope so. It's like, it's to be honest, like seeing you have a child and then a few folks here and a few friends abroad, like it's, I just had never thought about children as a possible future. And also like, I don't, I've also been like, you know, I'm barely raising myself, all that shit. But like, there is something really encouraging about seeing, seeing not just that queer parents are uh, like around, but also the ways in which the queer parenting seems like um, a, a different or in more innovative model of parenting. Like it's not, it's not always based on like this, this like, like very gendered monogamous relationship between two people that is reliant on expectations from society based on those genders. It's, it's not that, you know, it's specifically usually not that. And again, similar to how we connected, how we said earlier that gender doesn't always connect to your sexuality i don't think that like i think parenting is a it's a whole it's a whole separate thing right and your um who you are as a person outside of how you parent there are just as many ways to parent as there are people on this planet right <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you know and that there isn't just one model and i'm super grateful to get to highlight one of the models on how to be a parent yeah um, and I look forward, um, maybe one day seeing the way that you parent. <laughs> I think I'll parent my friend's kids. That's my dream. <laughs> I want to be like, I want to be kid adjacent and then be like, I'll hang out with kids. I know. I always, I have a photo of you on my fridge, um, for everybody who doesn't know Micah and I are good friends and, um, I have a photo photo of Micah on my fridge and I always tell Lexi I'm like oh this is your uncle Micah oh my god and um yeah and like but I <laughs> Alexis is gonna have a really interesting life because I tell Alexis everyone is his uncle and auntie so he's gonna be like we'll be listening to a Solange song and I'll be like oh this is your auntie Solange <laughs> like you know, Alexis is just gonna really think he's related to the entire world I mean let's see what happens <laughs> with that that could be a great yeah. that could be a great outcome I think <laughs> also like you talking about earlier about individual versus community and family like totally. yes being a queer parent has been really challenging in terms of finding literature that reflects who you are like a lot of the literature is written in binaries and i think when you're 
a person who's worked your whole life to really fight back against binaries, it, it proved to be quite challenging to um, read these texts. Uh, but um, yeah, I was just letting you know what the text said. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's it. Do you have anything you want to plug or anything we should direct our listeners, our 10 listeners to? The year 2020 is going to be a year that uh, defines uh, America and who we want to be as a people and as a community. And I know who I want to be as a people in a community. And I want to be a people in a community that uh, takes care of each other and that looks after each other and makes sure that people who are less fortunate than myself have access to things like um, health care and education and just housing. Um, and I think that we have an opportunity to really lay the groundwork to um, really uh, be there for each other. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, Kelly, thank you for our Sylvester episode, and we will um, see you soon. Bye, Micah. (laughs) That was Kelly Love Monster, and we were talking about Sylvester. If you aren't a Sylvester fan, I hope you become one, because it truly has made my life much better. Stud Stories is going to take a two-month break. Why, you might say? Because we're tired. But also, we want to do a second season. We're into the seasons idea. So check us out in two months for our next episode, the first episode of our second season. Also coming up in late November, we are going to have a sale on our merch on our website. And that is because the non-denominational winter holidays are soon upon us. And we want to make it easy for you to share your love of the stud with your friends and fams. So check us out at studsf.com. If you really want to get into some stud support, some deep stud cuts, please subscribe to our Patreon. Our Patreon subscribers get early access to this podcast, as well as a new feature where stud owner John fucking Cartwright is playing the records that we found underneath the stage at the stud. We pulled those records out, and just about every Saturday, John goes on Twitch, cleans the records, and plays a song from each of the records. He's been uploading those into a sort of like a podcast that we're only dropping to our Patreons. Since we can't party with you in person right now, do join us every first Saturday of the month at 6.30 p.m. for Drag Alive. Stud Stories is produced and edited by Tara Haywood. Ben McGrath is the production manager. Music is by Paige Turner. I am Vivian Forevermore, also known as Micah Sigourney, producer, writer, and host. I guess that's it for now. Stay warm. Or if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, stay cool.